0: The key learning was is you know, what is the true local consumer's expectation from us to provide that service? Whether you're Puma the brand or just setting up your own business, what is the competition doing in the market?
1: Hi, I'm Lauren Steibing, the founder and CEO of Ellis International. We're a global talent development and executive search firm specialized in the e-commerce space. And we recently recorded a webinar on how to successfully define and execute a D2C strategy. I wanted to share with you a great Q&A by Roy Wenzel, the business lead, strategic growth markets, global e-commerce at the Puma Group, and Mary Palmeri, the director of client development at Toll Ridge. I hope you enjoy. I know you were mentioning about failure and I would say that's always a a topic of discussion. So I think people think that failure is the worst thing that can happen. So I was wondering if you could share a story (laughs) around one of your failures, whether it be recently or in the past, but one that you remember and that you learned a a lot from.
0: It's a great question, actually. And um, I actually ask this question to everyone I'm interviewing for a position. I always say... Thanks for sending me a CV, but that's all your successes. Tell me about where you've got it wrong. Tell me when when you got it wrong. It's a really good question. It's actually, for me, it's more of a general one. And this one's actually a while back. Early on, I actually worked in the, the European e-commerce team for Puma. And then sort of before my days on the, the global e-commerce team, which is sort of the layer up from there. And in my new role in the global e-commerce team, you know, it was tasked with expansion and I thought I knew it all. What you need is this, this, and this to be successful in this country. And let's go ahead and let's do it. It was kind of more so talking to the the website technology, more so talking about the payment methods and just talking about like, if it works in Europe, it works here. And this was one of our emerging markets where it was the first time we were going to try something new like that. And it was my first big global project for Puma. I don't think I ever fumbled so hard, mainly because I didn't think of it from the local team and the local consumer perspective. I went thinking that best practices that I've learned in my previous area would, you know, being predominantly within Europe or the UK would apply to a new market. That was a big stumbling point for me. And I think didn't go so smoothly. My second approach for sort of a second country was the, the key learning was, is, you know, what is the true local consumers expectation from us to provide that service, whether you're Puma the brand or just setting up your own business. What is the competition doing in the market? Are you equaling that service, matching that service? You know, ask more questions from lower down into your your consumer funnel. And again, from from me coming from the global mindset based out of Europe, going to a new country if you're doing sort of cross-border, ask what are the expectations of the consumer in that market? Think of them first. And that actually helped me. So I think I failed thinking that I knew everything, which you know I still think I do, but I know that I don't now. But I've changed my approach in realizing that I don't know everything and that if I actually ask questions and try to get clarity of what people actually want, you have a better chance of being successful.
1: All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So Mary, I'm going to go to you now. Amazon, the big word here. Consumer products companies are, I think, afraid of Amazon. I would like to get your opinion on how can they successfully work with Amazon? I know you mentioned, let's say, testing new launches, but how have you seen to be the most successful way to work with Amazon?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think kind of in alignment with what Roy was saying with his strategy you have to take the same approach with each channel and you know tying into the failure talk where I've seen brands be least successful are brands that just put whatever up on the channel, don't really have much of a vision, don't really have much of a plan, don't really have much of a strategy in place, and then you end up losing control of the channel. So whenever we're talking with brands for us to determine which brands we would like to partner with in scaling the channel, the first thing we ask them are, what are your e-commerce goals? What is your vision for the channel? How are you planning this? Because if you don't have a plan for growth, it's not going to work. And so typically what I've seen about 10 to 20% of a business's sales typically goes through the Amazon channel for established businesses. So that's what companies should aim for. If you're just starting out on the channel, obviously there's going to be different goals for getting the platform set up and ramped up. So there's sort of two-pronged approaches there. But I think the way you're most successful about it is... Have goals, have a strategy in place. What do you want your sales volume to be by when? Which products are you going to sell? And then have the plan and the infrastructure in place to be able to learn from the data and analytics. Kind of applying your lens, Roy, to the Amazon channel.
0: I think in, in the very beginning, you mentioned have a different strategy per sales channel. Amazon being that. There's a different consumer type that looks at Amazon. And then there's a different consumer type that would look at your your Walmart marketplaces or your, your eBay, for instance, um, being the US-based ones. Um, I, I know most of the fashion ones like your Zalando's or Zando's, right? Yeah, are different customer mindset. So yeah, you can't just list all your products on there. You'd have to then also look at it as, as particularly what is the consumer on that one looking for to be successful?
2: Absolutely. That's a really good point because there is a merchandising strategy you can take for being a part of the channel. And so, you know, some of the things we've seen are you'll bundle certain products on Amazon or you'll create certain product exclusives for Amazon so you can get a lead-in to the customer. It's funny because when I started the beauty marketplace, the whole point of that channel was to be the anti-Amazon because at the time, retailers would look at beauty brands and say, well, if you're on Amazon, we don't necessarily want to do business with you. It was looked at as the discount channel, if you will, where you go and you find a deal. But now, because people are buying so much From Amazon, and they offer Prime and the two day shipping that now consumers are putting their whole purchasing plan on Amazon. People want automation, people want ease, people want efficiency. So it's really become the number one channel for finding and discovering new customers. And maybe you could even speak to this, Roy. I mean, testing new markets in different parts of the world. I've seen some brands test markets they want to enter into through the Amazon channel before investing full-fledged your whole brand resources on building something.
0: It is, it is an approach we have thought of before is launching marketplace first to test the water. But actually going back a little bit to something you just said, the partner you're working with listed their whole purchase inventory on Amazon. That's actually goes to something you said earlier is that, um, you know, 30% of consumer searches actually start on Amazon for goods. So again, if you're not taking the marketplace into consideration, you don't have that visibility for your product. Speaking from the branding perspective, your product is not seen in the market because people use Google to find information. People use Amazon to look for specific products or marketplaces in general. You know, the further east you go, the less prominent Amazon is. They tend to focus more on our goods. But again, uh, in the the fashion world, if you're not visible on some of these marketplaces, your product doesn't exist in that market.
2: That's absolutely correct. Or even worse, it's positioned by an unverified reseller who's selling Pumas that fell off the back of a truck, <laughs> and that's not really the brand equity you want to maintain.
0: Well, and um, my guess is it's not even an original truck that they fell off the back of. <laughs>
2: <laughs> not
1: that's the slowest brand in the yeah. world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mary, do you think that every brand should be on Amazon? I mean, products I understand, but let's say brands as a whole, where they wouldn't have any product at all on Amazon. Do you think that that's viable or every brand should have at least one product on Amazon?
2: You know, it's a bold statement, but I'm going to go ahead and say yes. And if you would have asked me even a year ago, I would have said mm, maybe not. But I think. You know, again, look at the data and look at consumer behavior. And so I think it's just become a channel, even if you don't want to, if you're a luxury brand and you might not necessarily want to sell all your goods through, have a placeholder there, have maybe like one Amazon type product or something, but it's definitely become a channel. It's almost like when social media first got started. It's like, do you get a Facebook account? Do you get an Instagram account? count, I'm seeing the same level of trend for emerging marketplace channels like Amazon. And so if you're not there, someone else will be. And so to win and sustain the right to win, just take ownership of it.
0: I have a slightly different opinion coming from the brand okay, side.
2: Let's hear it.
0: Not into kind of go into any details. I think you're right. You can't ignore it. More so I think you need to have a strategy behind it than anything else. You can't just from the branding perspective go we're not going to list anything and you can't not do it. So you need to have some sort of visibility there. So again, talking of Puma, knowing my experience, 70% of our our revenue as a company comes from wholesale and wholesale partners who would then list on Amazon or even buy. Amazon would maybe buy directly from us as a wholesale partner. So there could be that that potential. So you you can't just ignore it. You just have to know what you want to do with it. And, you know, again... Mm -hmm make a decision. And again, that decision could change, but you can't pretend that Amazon doesn't exist.
2: Correct. And so with your wholesale partners, are they the ones on the Amazon channel or does Puma as the brand have their own team deployed on managing that channel?
0: A little bit of both. We actually work with Amazon in in a hybrid model where they would buy percentage of the assortment from us directly. Of course, we can't stop independent wholesalers who or retailers who've bought from Puma from listing product on there if they choose to do that with one of their sales channels. Um, and then we we also then work with Amazon in, in certain markets where we then list a subsection to the, the items that they then had. You know, being Puma, we've got the wider assortment. And you tend to notice that Amazon would buy safer product and then we get to list the opposite. In different markets, for instance, Amazon will approach us where they want an exclusive in that market and they want to have a unique product uniquely for them on that market or unique business unit within Puma. They want to have all the motorsport product or the Red Bull products. And then, you know, it comes down to negotiation with them. But again, we we actively engage with Amazon and other partners as well as our wholesale and distribution partners to be successful because, you know, as, as the brand, what we don't want to do is to start a pricing war or anything with that and you know maintain that brand equity and the brand integrity at the end of the day i think is key to us
1: for sure and roy i know that you mentioned as we have helped hire for puma and we hire a lot of e-commerce profiles not just for puma but for the likes of logitech danone i completely agree with you in the mindset piece i learned quite quickly when recruiting that There's so many new technologies and so many new things to learn that no one can be an expert ever. So that's quite unique about the, the function, in my opinion. But how have you found to look for that mindset? How have you found, like, what questions or how do you go about identifying the mindset you're looking for for your teams? A lot of leading
0: questions. Trying to peer past everyone comes prepared for an interview. And sorry, you know, some of the the questions I I still really dislike. You know, where do you see yourself in five years? I really despise questions like that. So I try to avoid them because I'm trying to see what this person is like if they weren't putting on the, the show for us, right? So I tried a little bit more of a relaxed approach with leading questions. So tell me something about an incident, particular to you that was successful or failure and then you listen and then okay but you said you did this wrong why did you think so get them to just talk and then when you pick up on on sort of key nuggets of information drill in deeper on that Um, because you're right it is it is about the mindset skill set and tool set can be taught and it's going to be different in every company and again you know what's top technology today is outdated next week. Is your person that you're hiring willing to adapt fast enough, willing to learn? So that's the key. A lot of leading questions, I believe, is, is what I'm looking to. And then actively listen. And then if you pick up on, on something that's and deep dive at that point to try to understand the person better versus technical questions, for instance, unless it's for a, a very technical role, you need to know if they know and understand it. But I'm really trying to, deep dive and get into the mindset of the person more so than business questions
1: yeah and what qualities have some of the most successful people had in your opinion
0: honesty i've had people tell me sorry i don't know that at all and then i wait for it and i wait till the silence becomes uncomfortable and then they go but i'm willing to learn and that's what i'm looking for like i will be i don't know um but what are you going to do if you don't know okay What's the next step? Try to get them to be as honest as possible um, in the most, I think, relaxed atmosphere as you can. Again, sports brand, we can be a little bit more relaxed. I don't think I've worn a tie in a long time to the office. I think I've been in in the sports industry for a long time, but, uh, you know, people tend to turn up fully dressed. So, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable for them. And then, no, mention is, hell, you know, we're a little bit more relaxed here. So let them calm down, set them into a nice, calm place. And then sort of, you know, bombard them (laughs) as soon as they can come. Bombard them with as much information as you can draw out of them as humanly possible.
1: Well, thanks, Mary. Anything you'd like to add in terms of hiring e-commerce profiles and what you found to be successful?
2: Well, I love how you pull the honesty out, Roy. I think that's really great. And mindset is a big thing. On that note, I always look for... Even just balancing personalities. Uh, You don't want too many optimists on the team. You need like the pessimists to fact check the optimists. So when you're building out a full team, thinking about how the personalities also collaborate and fit together and will work together, something I like to keep in mind. I I do ask more, you know, what possibility, I don't ask the five-year goal, but I want to know, you know, what possibility people are out to create in this world. Like what makes them tick? What are they passionate about? Because once you tap into that, you know what motivates them at the end of the day. And if you have a motivated, happy, successful workforce, then it's going to drive productivity. You know, work will be a fun place to be. And I think that's what we all just want to try and create those types of environments?
1: Well, I have to say, I do ask the five-year question, Roy. (laughs) Not for the way that you So I actually think that it's really, really helpful, as well from a motivation perspective. You get really interesting answers, completely different all the time. And it is common that someone gives you like a straight, planned answer, and another person gives you like, oh, I don't like to think about that far in advance. But after all of them, you can ask why. And then you get some really interesting answers. So I have to say, I do use it, but I do think it helps to identify their career planning a little bit. But I would say more about their motivation, because if you're asking them, where do you see yourself in five years, they're going to ask you something. But the key is, as you said, to follow up and ask why. Like It's never the first question. The answers that you get after you ask other questions, you know?
0: I do think you need to ask those types of questions too. Well, my my approach is slightly different where I where I go, you know, what's your end goal? For me, it's more open questions to see, you know, if they even thought about it, um, more than than any kind of timeline. You're right, you know, what what is the ambition? Where do, where do they see this role taking them? Is it a stepping stone? And do you have to manage that or is this something that, you know, will they live and die in this role for the rest of their life and not want to move on? It's kind of where you need to figure it. I think Mary raised a very good point. Yeah, you have to look at the counterbalancing and the team and be diverse because you can't have 10 yes men. You've just got 10 people saying yes to you all the time. There has <laughs> to be that someone telling you, hang on a minute, I think we're doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to test that of mm-hmm. the
2: i that self-awareness. I know I am I can be more of the optimist so I, I need a fact checker or, you know, what it, yeah. if you see the personality test, I need the builder and banker by my side. I'm more the visionary creative, so engineers balance me out very well.
1: So just being mindful of your own skill set, I yeah. think as well.
0: Exactly.
1: And yeah, yeah, I know we don't have very much time left, but I have a question that I'd like you both to answer, which I think will be helpful. At least something that I've noticed when recruiting in this area is everyone is very curious and loves to learn because I think you need to have that to be successful in this function. But at the same time, I think that can be a detriment to prioritization. (laughs) So I would like to know what tips or any advice that you could give on how you prioritize. I know, Roy, you were mentioning, of course, setting goals, having a vision. And that's great. And I know that's theirs for you to refer to, let's say, should on a day to day or week to week or month to month. But are there any other tips that you could give of how you found to prioritize when there's new technologies, news, social media, everything, let's say data, everything kind of being thrown at you all day, every day?
0: (laughs) I prioritize based on return on investment You know, whether that's saving money, you know, are we optimizing the business to save money? Are we optimizing the business to get more money, top line revenue sales? Or are we doing something that's going to create more work efficiencies and it's going to give the team more time to work smarter, not harder? Always ask yourself, what's the return on investment behind this? Priority. What am I getting in return for doing this now versus doing this next week? And always make sure that you know you you balance that with what is the return on investment. And again, it's not always monetary value. Is, are we optimizing to get more time so we can work smarter and not harder to then free up time to learn something new? a new tool, a new skill set to make the teams more efficient that way or people more efficient? Or is it a business need? Will it save us um, bottom line or give us top line revenue? And that's my driving factor in decision making for prioritization. What are we looking to achieve?
2: What about you, Mary? Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Roy, um, and prioritizing on on the impact it will have both internally and externally. I'm in alignment with you on that. I, I think for me, even as an entrepreneur, when you have so many things coming at you, this was my key question daily. Like, where do I begin? I think what I've learned and taken away, and I think even going back to old school quoting like Peter Drucker, who says you could really only focus on three key tasks in a day. Anything beyond that is just going to distract you and create noise. So every morning I like to come in and make my to-do lists and saying, okay, what are the three key tasks for today that are going to make the most impact even on my day? And those are the three key tasks I'll I'll focus on and make sure I get to. And so that's kind of the daily thing. And then aligning that with the bigger plan where I have my, my buckets of projects that I'm working on and just, you know, making sure you're tracking efficiently according to
1: that. It's more a tactical way of how I go about that. Well, thank you to you both. I really appreciate you being here and preparing your slides and being so open and transparent. Thanks for having
0: us. Thanks for having us, Lauren.
1: Yeah.